box to box stoppage time. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Hello and welcome to Box to Box Stoppage Time. You're with Rob Gilbert, Michael Edgley and Derek Dyson. Now, normally, listeners, you will, if, if you listen to the main show, uh, been aware that we're changing the topic because it's our final show of the year. Uh, we're going to wish you a happy new year towards the end. But instead of our normal theme for stoppage time where we go through our teams and our moments and games of the week, this uh, week we're going to reflect on some of our highlights of 2023 and look ahead to a few moments for 2024. So before I welcome Edge and Derek um, to, to start to give their thoughts, uh, for me, 2023, yes, Women's World Cup, we're going to talk a heap about that, but it doesn't get, uh, it doesn't pass into history without mentioning one name, and that is Ange Postacoglu. Tottenham back on top, and Ange Postacoglu with a record start for a new manager to a Premier League season. Another win for Spurs, another top display. Now, it just feels like at times we're starting to take this a little for granted, but let's step back a minute. Now, I know Martin Tyler earlier in the main show said that over there in in the UK that uh, that people are just talking about him as a, as a, a football manager with an Aussie accent. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I think Martin's better qualified than I am, but, you know, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot, and there's certainly a few uh, commentators. I think Jonathan Liu uh, on The, the Guardian's uh, uh Acerbic comments about him suggest that um, that he's not a, a particular fan. But for those of us here um, in the Premier League, we thought the golden era would go on forever. Uh, influential players plying their trade across England and continental Europe. But now we knew it was a moment in time. Uh, similar to what we're experiencing with our women. So for a coach to emerge from the NSL of all places, hit the rock bottom of what has since become an iconic piece of television. I'm going to ask Derek about this uh, in a moment with Craig Foster and Les Murray trashing him and consigning him to history's dustbin. For him to come back uh, and uh, and become one of the, the great club coaches in the A-League to win an Asian Cup, to play fearlessly, as we know. They didn't have success in Brazil in the World Cup, but it was a fearless performance. He climbed the top of the J-League mountain, made fools of plenty of the pundits uh, that, uh, that that couldn't even pronounce his name. Alan Brazil, I'm talking to you. Uh, and, of course, some of the hardest-called Glaswegians who just now love him. Um, and, uh, and then turned up at a club who have invented ways to lose so spectacularly that they even have a, a word for it. Um, so I say whatever we've seen from Ange Postacoglu this year already, regardless of how the season ended, ranks him as one of our greatest ever sporting achievements and certainly one of the best. So, Derek, um, you, you've sort of tracked Postacoglu uh, and uh, you, you know Spurs fan, as anyone who uh, who listens to this show knows, but you, you've, you've read the book now. Uh, you went back and watched the clip. Um, what's your take on him from where he's come from to where he is now? Well, it's a fantastic story for a start, you know, just thinking about his immigration to Australia as a, as a young boy coming into a world where soccer is certainly frowned upon um, in Melbourne in particular in our very uh, AFL orientated and still very AFL orientated um, macho men's particularly men's sphere that it was not obvious to me that you know he seemed like he identified very early on that he wanted to be a very successful football manager we all know that he you know his playing career was cut short he tried 
to try to carry on, but but the injury sustained put pay to that. And at 30 years old, he was um, the manager of, uh, Mel- of uh, South Melbourne Hellas, and you know he he spent some uh, time with Frank Pushkas when he was when he was over there and uh, driving him around and picking his brains, and then he got the chance to take on uh, the top job job after a rock uh, left. Um, and acquitted himself extremely well, which led to that Socceroos uh, job. And then, yeah, the car crash TV uh, with with Fozzie. And, you know, that's not a Fozzie that I'm used to seeing, really. Mm-hmm. He was really going for the jugular. You know, we think of him now as the wise old man of football, very cer- cerebral, you know, very, very heavy topics that he deals with. But that was just proper kind of journalism, you know, fair play to Ange for fronting up in a way. Probably didn't need to go and do that interview, but he did. But he was so br- tetchy and bristling in that, that interview, and uh, and he probably would have looked back on that and reflected that that wasn't his finest hour. And you know, fair play to Brisbane Raw for giving him that opportunity afterwards to come back and demonstrate what a what a top manager he is. And I think the other theme that seems to come through, and this is where the Spurs job really bucked the trend, is that it takes time for Ange to get his ideas across. He's not one of these managers who just sort of turns up and everything happens, it seems, because Celtic, he had a pretty bad start. Yokohama F. Marinos, uh, he had a pretty indifferent uh, start there too. Uh, even in the um, uh, South Melbourne Hellas, he didn't have a good start either. So in a way, um, by starting so well at Spurs, really sort of bucked the Ange trend, really, um, which, which, which was interesting to see. So, yeah, I mean, obviously you can see I've had a, Massive upgrade in my and, and knowledge, and um, you know, yes, I like the story, and he always seemed destined, or he certainly was going to be determined to make sure that he got to the very top. And it is good to see that people from whatever background, uh, whatever origin, if they set their mind to something, that they can achieve it. And fair play to Ange for for reaching the pinnacle, nearly the pinnacle of the game. <laughs> well said. Um, and there's a there's a uh, a documentary that's been created by Australian uh, a documentary creator Tony Wilson that uh, um, that I've I've been seeing a little bit of publicity. They're trying to raise money to pay for some of the uh, the intellectual property that's inserted into that uh, documentary. So we'll have to get him on to talk about that soon. And it, it seems like the the legacy is going to go on. The Aussie legacy at uh, Yokohama F Marinos, if the the jungle drums that are beating right now are correct. Well, I guess one of the amazing. Um, Outcomes of Ange's um, journey in football has been the he's been a trailblazer for other Australian coaches, and um, there's so many benefiting from from that as we speak. You know, Kevin Musket is one that we've talked about in recent weeks that has benefited. But it looks like Harry Kuehl and John Hutchison will be some more because um, there's a lot of media in Japan at the moment about that. Very soon, Harry Kuehl is going to be announced as the head coach of Yokohama F Marinos, so he will follow in. Ange Postacoglu's footsteps. He's already spent time with him at Celtic. So, uh, and John Hutchison spent time with Ange Postacoglu also at Yokohama Marinos before he left to go cross town to Yokohama FC, and now he's coming back. So, very interesting uh, legacy from that perspective. And you know, my own uh, journey in football, I've had the opportunity to you know talk to Ange many times uh, privately. And the one, the one thing that sort of sticks out to me, Rob is that his self-belief in his own uh, systems, processes, philosophies. Um, of course, every manager evolves and as they get older and more skilled, but um, they remain 
um, probably similar today to what they were when he was coaching in the NSL. And in particular, he's um, grounding in the game. He's never seemed to lose that connection to. And um, there's so much media now that he um, does that um, you get a glimpse of it from time to time when journalists from various countries talk about his beginnings at South Melbourne and how much that club means to him. There's a, a glint and a glimmer and a, a real passion comes into his into his eyes when uh, the question. So it is a remarkable story. You're, you're right to raise it. Um, and who would have thought that um, he went to school with Chris Nicker, who went on to be <laughs> the chairman of Football Australia? And you know their journeys together is you know a lot of people don't realise how close friends they are. And yeah, it's it's a bit of a remarkable. Remarkable little community in uh, Melbourne that's... How about uh, those Greeks? They invented democracy, the lamb sandwich, and they reinvented football in this country. Not bad, eh? Yeah. All right. Why don't you give us your highlights? Um, You've got a couple there from 2023. Yeah, my first one for 2023, Rob, is the 10 players that were capped for the Socceroos for the first time. And um, I think this is actually a really interesting um little item to talk about because it's a window into how graham arnold works he has become the master at building depth and he does it in a unique way the 10 players that were capped for the Socceroos, we just go through them and the, the the matches and the dates that they played it's really quite an insight into graham arnold's thinking i actually think he plans all this he actually thinks about when he can get players into the team when he can blood players and how he can do it um, to the best advantage of uh, the overall development of the Socceroos. And, um, you know, I have to say that he's pretty successful. Aidan O'Neill on the 24th of March, uh, he got uh, cap 6-2-9 against Ecuador. Um, he's gone on to very good things um, in Europe and uh, he's going to be at the Asian Cup uh, in January. Um, Alex Robertson, there was a big uh, tug of war between England and Australia for... Robertson and he was capped 6.30. He got his start against Ecuador. He's, there is all sorts of raps about how well he's going at Portsmouth and I'm expecting he's going to be a big part of the Socceroos over the next decade. Joe Gauci, uh, cap number 6.31 versus Ecuador. So th- um, he was one of four players that got their opportunity in that friendly match. The other was Jordan Boss. Uh, both uh, Gauci and Boss are going to the Asian Cup um, and that's an indication of you know getting players in to the system, giving them some exposure and then following their progress. Um, the big one, though, came in um, Mexico, didn't it? Uh, three players got their caps uh, against uh, the Mexico in Dallas, the friendly against Mexico in Dallas. Cameron Burgess, um, who might be surprised to think that he's not the tallest player in the in I mean he's the, been the tallest player in every other football team he's played for except for the Socceroos because he's got Harry Sutta right next to him um Sam Silvera who uh, really um he got his cap against Mexico and then um has made every poster winner with uh, Middlesbrough since then and Lewis uh the, 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 sorry they were the two players that got their caps against um Mexico and then against England on the 13th of October Lewis Miller Cap number 635, Mo Torre, cap number 636. Um, and uh, they uh, are significant because uh, Lewis Miller, he's going to the Asian Cup. And Mo Torre, I think we haven't seen the last of him in national team colours. And the final ones uh, who got their caps, um, Alessandro Cercati, who's been involved in a tug of war with Italy. He got his cap for Australia against New Zealand on the 17th of October. And Cassini Yengi, who um, got his cap against Bangladesh on the 16th of November. The one thing that all these caps do is not only showcase um, 
the depth for of Australian football to the fans. But I would expect that when you get a cap for your national team and you coach Patcher on the back and he gives you an opportunity to play, that gives you so much motivation to go back to your club and train and play and mm. make every post a winner. Because I'd imagine that the confidence you get from that is amazing. So just a bit of a – I think that Rob um, shows – where Graham Arnold's at as a coach of the national team and the ability to build depth and uh, give players uh, caps and exposure, which uh, helps drive their motivations and probably also helps get them new clubs. And briefly, before we go to Derek, you, you talked about uh, the departure of Massimo Luongo, uh, uh, but uh, but his um, uh, reinvention at Ipswich Town, his influence at that club to, to uh, help them, um, well, it seems, um, get, gain promotion to, to the Premier League. Uh, they just really have to fall apart. They had that one-all draw. Um, got lucky against Leicester City um, on uh, a couple of days ago. So, uh, yeah, Muscle Wongo um, is it, it. Look, I said in the main show, I don't think he'll be one of the all-time greats, but he'll certainly be a great. Oh, I think he's a modern Socceroos hero. And, you know, 45 Socceroos caps and an Asian Cup title. Uh, I'm just going to let the wonderful words of Andy Harper uh, describe the brilliance of Massimo Belongo, who won the Asian Cup for Australia in 2015. The pass from Trent Sainsbury to bypass opposing players and put a teammate in the advantage position. And then Maslowongo receives the ball with a half turn, rolls it towards the target and lets rip from 20 yards. It's a beauty on Cup final night from Maslowongo. An absolute beauty. And look at the smile on the face of Ange Postacoglu. Well, even Master Longo has a connection to Ange Postacoglu, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, he's a modern soccer great because he was the player of the tournament in the 2015 AFC Asian Cup Australia, and he um, won uh, the match for Australia in the final with that goal. And I've got to say that um, I think we need to elevate him. As time goes on, I think his significance will be... Um, further enhanced by the types of games he played. Now, I can remember Massimo Luongo in the World Cup qualification uh, phase for 2018 Russia. Nobody travelled more uh, and played more minutes than Massimo Luongo through that entire period. Sorry, Milay Edenik did. So Milay Edenik and Massimo Luongo during that campaign were unbelievably important players. And I'll never think of the game that uh, Massimo Luongo played in a nil-all draw on a heady, sticky, long-grassed, doctored pitch in El, uh, in San Pedro Sula in Honduras. Massimo Longo was the player of the game. It was a nil-all draw. He kept Australia well and truly um, alive. And then we were able to come um, back home in Sydney and beat Honduras 3-0 at home, deck to qualify for Russia. Massimo Longo um, needs to be remembered as a modern soccer great because of the hard work that he did. And I've got great respect for the decision that he made the calendar, I talked about the main show, Rob, the mm-hmm. calendar, uh, the FIFA calendar didn't do him any favours. He needs to stay at Ipswich Town. They're in the hunt to get promoted, which for Ipswich Town, getting promoted from the championship to the Premier League is bigger than Texas. And mm-hmm. he's one of their main players. So you can understand why Massimo Longo has had to decline the opportunity to play for Australia the Asian Cup. That's yeah, very well, sad, but it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a, a product of modern football. Yeah, well, well, well said, and uh, um, and he's, he's given us heaps of great memories, and at the very least, he gets to go out on his terms, which uh, I think uh, he, he deserves to do. Okay, over to Derek. Um, now, Derek, you've got a couple of observations on 
you know, we, we get excited about great football stories and events and games and players and so on. But, you know, there's, there's always uh, a seedy underbelly and we saw a bit of that this year. Yeah, that's right, Rob. Uh, I've gone for the light topics, as always, uh, for this kind of segment. Uh, and I wanted to start off with uh, Luis Rubiales. Uh, you know, we obviously had the Women's World Cup here, and I know you gents will reflect on that tournament and, and the women's game from that point of view later on. A great tournament, amazing run from the Matildas and, and Spain, the worthy winners uh, beating England in the final. But the tournament's probably going to be remembered for one thing, and that was Rubiales' post-match antics, not just with the Spanish team, but also reports more recently that he got quite hands-on with one or two of the England ladies uh, as well. Um, many called this football's Me Too moment. Uh, there was a wave of support across Spain and then the world for Jenny Hermoso uh, after she was assaulted by Rubiales uh, on uh, receiving the trophy and her medal. Um, Rubiales and the Spanish uh, uh, FA Honchos initially stood their ground and dug in. God, did they dig in. Uh, Rubiales said multiple times he'd done nothing wrong. And of course, that is the nub of the problem. Uh, his mum went on hunger strike, you remember, for two days. Uh, not sure if that was a diet or an, you know, fasting. It wasn't quite a hunger strike. But uh, um, eventually he was removed along with the also unpopular uh, Spanish manager, George Vilda, who had delivered the, uh, the World Cup trophy. And, and of course, this has led to dramatic change in the women's game uh, in Spain uh, and, and then more broadly too. There are, of course, green shoots. Obviously, the World Cup was a huge success. Uh, the general growth of the game in 2023 has continued. Arsenal women are averaging over 50,000 attendances. Rebecca Welch, uh, referee, and the, the first female referee to take charge of a Premier League game over the Christmas period. However, significant issues still remain. Uh, football is a man's world. We've seen some terrible interactions with uh, people like Joey Barton, uh, one of the most loathsome men in football prior to this, but now solidifying his status as a solid gold bellend uh, by saying that female commentators and analysts, analysts have um, no place uh, in the men's game and referring to the BBC's Alex Scott. Now, Alex Scott did respond to that, and I think Adam's got a clip for us. Just before we say goodbye to all the women in football, in front of the camera, behind it, to the players on the pitch, to everyone that attends game, keep being the role models that you continue to be, to all those young girls that are told, no, you can't. Football is a better place with us all in it. Goodbye. Well done, Alex, for you know being able to go on live on national television there to rebuke some of uh, Mr. Barton's comments and the game is better with the likes of Alex and, and other people uh, in it. So I know we shouldn't even be giving his views oxygen, um, but it is sad that there are a lot of fans that actually agree with some of uh, his views. So there is uh, an awful lot of work still to do. Yep, there is, um, but uh, you know it needs to be talked about. Um, I know we've sort of bucked at times about having to bring it up, but if we if we don't discuss it and bring it out into the light and and um, share our opinions as part uh, of the, the 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 community of, uh, of voices that there are out in the, in the game, then uh, um, then you know we don't uh, you know give it. Uh, the uh, the opportunity get to get uh, drop kicked into the dustbin of history. So um, yeah, so uh, 
farewell, Lewis. Um, we hope we uh, we don't see you again, uh, unless you, perhaps you come back uh, rehabilitated. Maybe maybe you will. Um, that's uh, that's probably the best case scenario. If uh, if uh, if he does see the error of his ways and uh, and recognises them publicly, and and violence in the game is uh, there's just been too much of that this year. Uh, whether it's uh, uh, that recent in- incident in the Turkish uh, top flight um, with uh, the referee getting punched and. Uh, it's, yeah, it's your, your call. Um, expand on it, please, Derek. Yeah, another thing we want to put in the dustbin is violence in football uh, on and off the pitch. And yes, you uh, mentioned uh, Farouk Kokar, who uh, punched uh, Halil Mella on the uh, the pitch there in uh, Turkey. Um, when football resumed in Turkey, there was a uh, an altercation between players from Berzaspor and Biarikispor in a uh, uh, two third division uh, in matches uh, fueled by ethnic uh, tensions. Uh, there was viral images showing the Bursaspor players rushing visitors um, after the final whistle of their of their two um, nil uh, defeat. Um, moving away from Turkey, if we were to go to France, uh, France has been a hotbed of football uh, violence, and in, in particularly recently, we. Um, had violence after Marseille's match with Lyon was called off, um, with visitors, uh, bus, um, and some fans being pelted with stones and beer bottles. And the then uh, Lyon coach Fabian Grosso uh, getting injured. There were also Nazi salutes from the Lyon fans in the Stade Velodrome. Uh, earlier in October, a match between Clermont and Montpellier. Had to uh, go to it had to be replayed after a flare was thrown on the pitch uh, near the goalkeeper. A few weeks later, a Lons fan was badly injured in a um, a fight with several Lav um, fans. A mass brawl broke out between Marseille, Marseille and Lyon fans after their match in Lyon. Uh, Bordeaux's hope of promotion to League Two was scuppered when a fan ran onto a pitch and insulted the opposition goalkeeper. Uh, three police officers were injured after Legia Warsaw fans were involved in violent clashes before the Europa Conference League game with Aston Villa recently. Uh, Greek authorities recently announced that it's asked its Super League uh, teams to hold matches without spectators for two months. I could go on, gents, uh, but there's just a few of them. I don't know where all this has come from. I don't know if it's always been there and it's just more reported. Uh, is this the, the the emergence of more right wing, um, you know, polarizing uh, politics, uh, populist politics across Europe, soaking up young disenfranchised men? Could be something to do with that too. Um, but whatever happens, football needs to get a, a bit of a grip on this cancer, which is ruining the game across across Europe. It's a, it's a litany, and as I you know can see. Exactly, and I know it was last year, but uh, um, you know the bucket man incident at the uh, the, the Melbourne Derby, the City Victory Derby, uh, um, where um, where the uh, the judge. Oh, I just can't still get my head around um, him overturning the, the jail sentence of uh, of uh, Alex uh, Agalopoulos, um, the uh, the assailant in that incident. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a conversation that I guess we, we need to, to keep on having, and um, you know it's it's not going to go away. But we need to 
police itself police in, in one form or another um look on to more positive topics though i mean i'm going to end my thoughts on 2023 and sort of segue into 2024 with the same uh the same topic um in 2023 i think you know, it seems like a lifetime ago, but, you know, we were in the early days of COVID in June 2020 when Australia and New Zealand won the rights to the uh, the Women's World Cup. And uh, and not even the, the most eternal optimist would have thought that it was going to work as well as it did. Uh, we knew it was going to be big. We knew it would be successful, but, but just how successful it was. And then that famous penalty shootout victory. Uh, well, remember this. Can write the Matildas into history. An epic night for Australia. And Courtney Vine, uh, ice in her veins, stepped up. She was a uh, an A League women's player, or a W League at the time uh, player, and uh, and and did the job. It was just massive in this country. We had the Sam Kerr uh, dramas. Well, she won't she play, but in the end, she got out on the park. It was a, a shame that the Matildas didn't get uh, a, a medal, but uh, it was just a highlight uh, for for this country. Uh, uh, New Zealand, of course, as well, which sort of takes me on to their next assignment, looking ahead to twenty twenty four. Now, of course. First, the Matildas have got to get through Uzbekistan. Uh, there, there are plenty of scenarios, and I know Edge has expa- explained them, uh, where uh, where uh, they may not get through. But uh, assuming that they do, uh, the, the the contrast here in the tournament, and again, Edge just discussed this, but 32 teams for the first time in the expanded Women's World Cup, 12 teams in the, uh, in the Olympics. But uh, if the Matildas can get a medal, in the best case of scenarios, Michael, uh, uh, can they go all the way? I mean, we've got uh, France, the USA, Canada, Brazil, Colombia. They've already qualified. Uh, two of Netherlands, Germany and Spain will qualify, uh, along with Australia, either uh, Japan or North Korea. If we knock off uh, Uzbekistan, then there's the Oceania. Uh, New Zealand most likely to get that. Then the African nations, of course, there's Ghana, Zambia, Tunisia, Morocco, Cameroon, Nigeria, Tanzania and South Africa. So, Edge, do, do are you expecting the Matildas in 2024 to, to win a medal? And is it ridiculous to think that, that they could take the next step up and, and knock off the likes of Spain or beat Canada again or even the US uh, national women's side, Brazil, and, and, and win the whole thing? I think on our day, um, if we're healthy and um, things go away, we can definitely um, beat France, United States, Canada uh, and Brazil and Colombia without any problems. So, yes, there is a medal uh, on the offing, and there's potentially a gold medal if uh, things go very, very well. Um, so, yeah, you raised the t- only 12 teams. Um, there's a lot of good teams out of Europe that won't be there, and that is to our advantage. So um, I'd have to say that, it, it, look, to win a gold medal, a lot's got to go our way. Um, the tournament happens very quickly, um, and, yeah, we can win a gold medal. And wouldn't that be great? Because I think 2024 is going to continue to be an amazing year for women's football. And I'll explain to you why, Rob. Uh, In 2024, Australia will be appointed as the host of the 2025 AFC Asian Cup for Women. And that will be another big tournament that will uh, engender and um, leverage from the popularity of the Matildas. Uh, Also, the AFC will announce there'll be an Asian Champions League for women. In 2024, that will be announced, and that'll start in 2025. That will be a significant boost for uh, A-League women's clubs who who will have an opportunity to go and uh, play in Asia, like Melbourne City did 
in this uh, current Asian Champions League format and what it means for the development of, of women's football. And what it, I, I can tell you what's going to continue. I think Simon Hill mentioned it was 12 matches in a row that the Matildas have sold out. Well, those sellouts are going to continue for Matildas matches in Australia in 2024. Um, there's no sign of any abating love and um, they are genuine box office um, box office success. They are box office gold, Rob, and that is translating into uh, not only a, a bubble of goodwill for foot, women's football, but it's all translating into a commercial windfall for Football Australia, which is benefiting from the success of the Matilda with some of its commercial deals. So mm-hmm. this women's football story um, is going to continue and it's going to drag um, the uh, the status of the A-League women's competition. Um, you've only got to talk to any volunteer club administrator, which I do on a regular basis. They cannot find room to fit in the amount of girls who want to play football. The the, the legacy for uh, Australian football is significant. The only challenge we have is what Simon Hill identified in the, mm-hmm. in the main show, and he articulated it perfectly, mm-hmm. is that um, the politicians are conflating the success of the Matildas as a success for women's sport. No, it's not. It's a success for women's football. Mm. And it's a success for the decades of investment that, that against the grain, uh, the federation and uh, state federations have made in women's football, at times against uh, very loud uh, anti-women's male football voices. They pursued their pathway and the pioneers of... Um, Women's football in Australia should be very proud of themselves because this is not a success for women's sport. This is a success for women's football. Let's not forget it. Let's not uh, make that mistake and uh, conflate it to something that it's not. Yep, no, fair enough, Stephen Conroy. Um, leave a legacy, mate, of your own and, uh, and get this uh, uh, stadium issue sorted out. Uh, there's there's lots of technology out there that uh, we would all look into uh, in a little bit more detail about making uh, boutique stadiums, uh, developing them and putting them into uh, into spaces that are, uh, are purpose uh, built or purpose size, right sized uh, is probably the words I'm looking for to, to get this fixed. Uh, we don't have to wait decades to, to get it sorted out. Derek, why don't you bring us home with uh, with your final topic? I mean, we've had a few days uh, since we talked to, to Martin Tyler, um, asked him about the uh, the re-emergence of, of the, the European Super League concept. Yeah, we did speak about that in the, in the main show, uh, the significance of the, the European courts uh, effectively saying that the European Super League concept wasn't illegal. Um, it was deemed illegal uh, at the time. And I've just sort of been reflecting on what does this all mean for football as we head into 2024. Uh, obviously, FIFA and UEFA responded in a very antagonistic and quite mocking way to A22, they're called the people that launched the first version of this Um the clubs themselves were to rule themselves out, um, but as we'll go on to just dis- to, to, to discuss, uh, they, these did read like holding pattern press releases. You know, there was not a lot in them. Um, if I were Infantino or Seferin, I, I wouldn't be taking a huge lot of comfort that that the likes of Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, and others are distancing themselves because of the bin, the, you know, the bin fire of publicity from from the last time it was quite interesting that Jurgen Klopp said you know that while Liverpool are committed to UEFA competitions he did feel a shake-up the 
UEFA FIFA monopoly was potentially uh, a good thing. And of course, we discussed in the main show too, the expanded FIFA World Club uh, Cup tournament, the 32 teams playing every four years. Um, uh, this is FIFA trying to take a piece of the, uh, the lucrative club game as well. It all seems up for grabs at the moment. Um, this year has also seen Saudi Arabia spend big to establish itself as a world football powerhouse. Uh, a host of stars have headed to the Middle East. Saudi look almost dead set to host the uh, 2032 World Cup. There's obviously the ownership of Newcastle United. The recent World Club Cup was also hosted in Saudi. So there is a lot of moving, these big tectonic plates moving on the on the surface at the moment. But what, what does all this mean, all of this jostling and manoeuvring? Well, I think what it means is that the football world football is ripe for disruption. Um, at the end of the day, this is a rampantly capitalistic sport, as Edge has pointed out numerous times on this show. And the clubs will always follow the money. Uh, sponsors will always gravitate to the biggest, newest, shiniest thing. Uh, the Premier League is the richest competition in the game, but it's on a knife edge. Because well, on the one hand, it's punishing teams who break the rules, but it also has to try and keep them loyal as well. Uh, they are dangling the carrot of a fifth qualification spot for the Champions League uh, for certain leagues in a, in a bid to sort of shore up its support from the so-called big clubs. But my thought is that as clubs are, more clubs are bought by billionaires, oligarchs, nation states, hedge funds, you name it, uh, just simply not playing an elite competition Every year is just not going to be an option for these clubs. Uh, Radcliffe hasn't put a quarter of a billion dollars into or pounds into Manchester United for them not to be playing in the Champions League. Saudi Arabia is not uh, inv- is, is, is not invested in Newcastle to not be at the top uh, table of football. Missing out on that revenue is not going to be an option. And if they have to pick pack up their balls and play somewhere else, then then they will do that eventually. So. A22 learned a lot of hard lessons with uh, Super League 1.0. Surely they'll come back with a refreshed, more fan-friendly version. Um, And those uh, press releases from the Big Six will potentially count for nothing. So whether this happens in 2024, gents, I I don't know. I would say it is inevitable that, that there is going to be serious disruption over the next couple of years, particularly in European football. So you think we'll have more topics to talk about um, next year? Oh, I think there'll be lots to talk about. I think there'll be lots to talk about next year, uh, Rob. And I just think we've got to have our eyes well and truly open. There's some really, really big, big political moves happening across the chessboard that is world football at the moment. And, and yeah, look, next 12, 24 months are going to be fascinating. It will be. All right. Well, let's um, well let's look forward to it. This is uh, where we end it and wrap it up for twenty twenty three. Uh, um, Edge, uh, safe travels. You're heading up to uh, to Qatar for the for the uh, uh, the Asian uh, Championships. So I know when we talked to Scotty McIntyre recently, he thought Japan were, were as close to a lock as you could be. But um, I reckon Arnie might have a few things to say about that along the way. There's certainly going to be lots of twists and turns, Rob, isn't there? And um, who who can actually predict what's going to happen at the Asian Cup? I think it'll be a fabulous tournament. And I know that uh, you guys will be getting up early in the morning in Australia mm-hmm. to uh, see uh, what uh, Arnie and the Socceroos can do, whether we can take um, another Asian Cup home. Can I just have a self-indulgent moment for a moment, uh, Rob, if I can just have two minutes? So I just want to um, 
make a very big shout out to a colleague of mine. I don't talk about uh, the work I do in football here in Thailand much to Madam Peng, who is the chairman of Port FC, a club that I've done a fair bit of work with here. Um, she's uh, spent seven years building up a club, uh, securing foreign investment. Uh, they, uh, she's a, Her tenure is about to come to a close at Port FC and they uh, got over the top of Broome United, the big daddy of Thai football recently, and uh, uh, are going to fight out the championship. But um, Madam Pang, an incredible lady, she's going to be taking on uh, the future presidency of the Thai Football Association, and mm. she'll be the only female uh, at uh, Asian football, Asian football's uh, global table as a president of a federation. So um, she's an incredible, passionate football person. Uh, the family is a huge insurance company. Um, she's uh, dedicated her life to the sport, and she's about to take on the biggest project of her life, Rob, and mm. lead the, the Thai Federation to try and... Uh, make the magic in Thailand that we've been so fortunate to observe um, when your national football teams do well at World Cups, Rob. Yeah, no, well, uh, congratulations, Madam Pang. I know I talk about this from time to time, but when I was travelling the world uh, as a younger bloke back in 1990, I'd never forget uh, uh, the uh, the reaction to, to the 1990 World Cup uh, in Thailand. It was just incredible. So, you know, three decades on, I'm sure it's only grown and grown, and uh, Thailand are one of those many Southeast Asian countries that uh, are just licking their chops at the prospect of getting into that expanded uh, World Cup uh, as, as it becomes closer and uh, it needs good people to, to run the show there. So uh, so all the best to Thailand. Edge, Happy New Year. Um, happy New Year to Rob. Have a great uh, night, you two, Derek and Adam, and uh, let's, do all, let's do it all again next year. Excellent, Derek. Uh, you have a very happy New Year. I know what it's like having little kids, mate. You don't get out and party uh, like you used to anymore, mate. You'll probably be in bed at 9 o'clock. Oh, possibly earlier, Rob. Uh, but yeah, the, the, certainly the, the days of the early rises. So, yeah, I won't be giving it too big a nudge on New Year's Eve. Yeah, well, Happy New Year to you and to your beautiful family and to Adam Maloney, who's off mic, but uh, equally has a little family. And it's going to be a growing family in 2024. Uh, thanks to you, mate, for your excellent contributions. We, we're really grateful for your professionalism, your attention to detail, and for making sure that this podcast uh, can stand alongside of, uh, of every other podcast that sits out there in in the world game uh we're back on the 8th of january we're going to take a little break ourselves willem will be back he'll be uh checking in from the uk so you'll be hearing the voice of willem van dendron uh as well so willem uh, happy new year to you as well and uh, and to our young buck daniel from soccer scene who's been uh, helping us out uh in the in the last couple of months uh daniel sadlarovic uh, you've done an excellent job uh supporting uh, the show while willem's been on a break and to you our listeners we wish you all the very best we hear all sorts of stories about 2024 but there'll be positive things there'll be excitement there'll be fun and a lot of it will be centered around football so we'll do our very very best to bring it to you we hope you've enjoyed box to box this year we'll be back for our ninth year next year so if you do get the chance please subscribe to the show to stoppage time we'll get another episode of it offside out eventually uh tweet us at box to box nts follow us on x and like us on facebook and have a very very happy new year and join us throughout each week in 2024 as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.